Hello, Charter folk. Delighted to be with you today. Delighted to be working on the second of what's going to be a little series here of Charter Folk Oxygen Bar, this moment of great challenge that all of public education and the charter school movement is going through. What is it that we can do to bring more oxygen into our rooms so that we can support everybody who is facing things that are just so difficult that we need to find new resiliency within our movement and within ourselves? And when I was thinking, who are who's the shortlist of people that I want to speak to first? Folks that have brought oxygen into every room I've ever been in during my world, during my time in charter schools. At the very top of the list, Linda Brown, the founder of Building Excellent Schools and a person who's made as much positive progress on behalf of kids and communities and charter schools as anyone I know. I reached out to Linda. Welcome, Linda, for be to being here. I re Hello, Linda. So terrific to see you. Uh, I reached out to Linda and said, hey, would you be willing to be a part of this conversation regarding the oxygen bar at Charter Folk? And Linda graciously said yes. But she said on one proviso, on one caveat, I have to be able to bring two extraordinary um, people who I've been working with into the conversation. I said, absolutely, that sounds fantastic. But before we turn to those two extraordinary friends, Linda, can you just spend a minute or two or however much we can get from you. How is it that you've just been able to make such amazing progress over your entire career on behalf of communities and charter schools? You are just a portrait of resiliency. You're a portrait of bringing oxygen into every room. Can I just ask you, how in the heck do you do it? Stubborn. <laughs> just you know, one word, stubborn. I'm, and, and I, it's like a dog with a bone. And when I saw this opportunity, I just couldn't let go of it. And when people said it's crazy, it's only going to be 10 years. What do you want to do? What do you want to invest in? And I I like the word um, resilience, but I like the word persistence better than resiliency. I think it's for all of the people who have founded schools, it is about the persistence. It's almost like I'm not let go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And Ambrosia, who you meet, and Chris Manning, who you meet in a minute, they have for me the portraits of this persistence. And I take that back to myself, too. Jed, I'm persistent. That means... If there's anyone who has shown that kind of stubbornness in a very constructive way for kids and for our entire movement, it has certainly been you. And to have you here with me is fantastic. I, I, I turn the platform back to you to introduce your two friends that you've wanted to bring into this conversation. Yes, please. Thank you, people who are important in my life. And I'd like you to meet. First, we'll start with Ambrosia Johnson. Ambrosia is uh, someone who was sitting in the lobby of Building Excellent Schools about eight years ago, and she'd just done a short stint with one of our adjunct programs. And I was sitting next to her, and I looked at her, and I said, and she was talking about what she'd seen in a particular school that morning. And I looked at her, and I said, you should start a school. Oh, and she said, I will in a couple of years. I said, no, you should do it now. And she said, I couldn't do it now. I have another year of this one. I have to go to graduate school. I have to go here. No, I said, you have to do it now. And I said it enough times that I think I broke through the wall. Ambrosia, what was it about what I was saying to you that caught you up in this the, the fervor of starting a school? Ambrosia? 
I'm sorry, can you repeat that, Linda? Yes. What was that thing that morning when we were sitting next to each other in the hall of BES that made this was what you were going to do even though you hadn't planned on it? I remember that morning and I remember how much my thoughts had expanded when I was in Boston with BES and the way that they taught us to analyze schools and to analyze the DNA of the schools. And I remember getting ready to leave and I wanted to find Linda to just thank her for the experience, to thank her for the opportunity. And I remember saying an internal prayer to myself and I said, really pray that this summer when I'm paired at the school, that the principal that I work with recommends me for this fellowship because I'm deeply aligned with this organization and all it is that they believe in. And I remember seeing Linda and Linda coming over to me and saying exactly what she said. And I said to her, I am not ready to, to do this. And she confirmed that I was and that they had been watching me for the last couple of days. And it was the passion that I saw through the individuals at the fellowship, the passion and the conviction that Linda Brown spoke with during that time, and this deep belief that I felt as I was speaking with her. And I'll never forget that day in that Boston office. And Linda said to me, "Do you are you married? Do you have children? And I said, I have a mom and I have a grandmother and I have a little sister. And she said, call your mom on the phone right now. And I called my mom and Linda got on the phone and she said, you will be at the ribbon cutting of your daughter's school in two or three years. And I remember my mom saying, who is this woman? What is she talking about? And I was like, mom, I don't know what's about to happen. And um, the same conviction and, and persistence that I felt from Linda in that lobby on that day has been the same. Uh, and I think we're about five years out, but yeah, I will never ever forget that day. Ambrosia. What did you name your school? I named my school Ivy Hill Preparatory Charter School. The ivy was important because the ivy is one of the strongest plants that can withstand the harshest of any environment. And when I thought about the neighborhood that we were going to be opening a school in, it's actually the same neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, the same neighborhood that my mother had to bust me out of because she did not feel like there were enough high quality school options in our community. And I traveled an hour away to go to school in a predominantly white community because my mom just felt like the options in our community were not good. When I thought about what our school was going to represent, it was going to represent persistence and it was going to represent the ability to persist despite what was happening around it. And when you think about it being wrapped around different buildings and just different infrastructure around our country, right? You think that there are so many things that happen outside, but the plant remains, right? That vine remains strong. And I remember the first day of the fellowship when they asked us to choose the name. And in my mind, I said, I already know what the name of our school is gonna be. And it was either Ivy Hill Prep, Ivy League Prep. And they're like, what is this Ivy? And I was like, oh, I've thought about this for a very long time. And I know what the name of our school is going to be. <laughs> You're a real trip, Ambrosia. It was, and it still is, a pleasure and a challenge always to work with you. And Chris Manning, can I go to Chris now and ask Chris, you're a fellow, you were a fellow that I never met before your joining BES. We met only at, on Zoom. Is that right?
That's true. I was overseas when we met. Yes. And, and literally, you were in the military. And It was my post-military career. I was in international education. But I was running, when I first connected to BES, I was running the school that I opened in Bangladesh. Say more about that. Yeah, the military took me all over the world. My wife is from Central Asia. We were living in Central Asia. And we, I lived in Pacific Asia. I had lived in Europe, everywhere. But South Asia is a place we never experienced. So we decided to go to South Asia and work. Initially worked in a school as a vice principal at a boarding school there, but then one of the parents wanted to open a school in his own city. So he asked me if I'd come and open the school for him. Um, like Ambrosia, I was, I was no, I'm not, I, I can't open a school. What are you talking about? But he said, yes, you can. You've, I've watched you this whole time here at this school. You've done an amazing job as number two. Please come and be the number one and open the school for me. And I did. It was a fascinating experience. It, I cut my teeth as a founder per se. And I knew I wanted to do the same thing in America. I wanted to come back home with the military and plus the international education. I've been outside of the country for a third of my life at that time. And I knew I wanted to come home to do the same exact thing, but this time I wanted to do it here in the United States. So I didn't care which state or which city I came to, which is how I ended up in Buffalo, New York, being from Pasadena, California. Um, and yeah, it all started with that phone call, Linda, in the middle of the night. <laughs> and yeah, his, the rest is history. And when Chris asked where, I said, all the places are taking, you'd have to go to Buffalo. He said, Buffalo, New York. I said, Buffalo, New York. Chris, you had come spend a lot of your life in California. And you said, no. And I said, well, that's it. That will end our conversation. But you persisted. And talk Absolutely. about- Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the wife was, she was agreeable to it because they have strong winters in Kyrgyzstan. So we, we decided we can do it. And it was only because I came here in July of that year prior to the fellowship, I checked out the city and it, it seemed like a place that we wouldn't mind raising our kids at. And so, so we came and we, we made the right decision. How long did you have to wait, Chris, before your family came? Because traveling back and forth, it was not an easy deal. Yeah, it was a lot going on the family front during the fellowship, Linda. So my wife, because she's not an American citizen, her and my son stayed overseas when we were going through the green card process. So we were separated for 18 months. And that was the same time that my mother was uh, terminally ill with ALS in California. So it was a lot going on in the fellowship at the same time. But I, I believe much of that kind of why we were so, to your point, stubborn about getting the school off the ground. After going through all of that, the school was going to open come hell or high water. And we did. Mm -hmm. How did you, Chris, how did you get through what we hope is the worst of the pandemic? You were to open, except what happened is that you couldn't open or you were told you couldn't open. Yes. So absolutely right. We drafted our charter and we intended to open August, 2020. And the Pandemic started to become a reality early 2020, and we started to look at each other thinking, how are we going to do this? It was never a question as to whether or not we we're going to do it. It was just how we were going to do it. Just going back to what I had said about the fellowship, my mother, because she had ALS, she was at my sister's home, and they had, they had brought in all this equipment, this hospice uh, care equipment, and converted my niece's room into a complete care room, and a nurse would come to the home. And I was so impressed by how they were able to 
bring in equipment and bring in services right to the home. And that stuck on my brain. So right when we were actually thinking about how to open, I remember, you know, having that aha moment thinking, okay, we can do similar, some, we can actually provide a similar service to our kids and that we can bring everything to them and still make it happen. And that's what we did. We, uh, we purchased, uh, we rented two U-Haul trucks. We'd already purchased the chairs and desks and everything. And my, my statement was, it's either going to collect desks, collect dust in the um, building, or we can take it to the kids. We bought it for them, not for us. So we took every single kid. Here is your chair. Here is your desk. Here's your laptop. Here's your Wi-Fi hotspot. Here's all your stationery. Here's two uniform shirts. And we also purchased two vans because every week we delivered their breakfast and their lunch package to them. And I told the parents, hey, everything's set. All they have to do is be in that seat at 830, logged in with a uniform shirt and already have had breakfast. And we started school. We gave them the bridge schedule to reduce the screen time. They had to go to the restroom. They raised their hand. They went away for two minutes, came back. And we started school. We increased proficiency. And our teachers, instead of making them sit down and teach from a laptop, we brought in and purchased studio equipment. My statement was, if Bill Nye, the science guy, could do it when I was a kid, why can't we do it in the 21st century? So we brought some studio lighting in, audio equipment, multiple screens, and said, give them the best experience they could have. So our teachers, we have to train them on how to use the studio. Our kids were in their workstations, and we started school. And it was a phenomenal year. We did their award ceremony on their, per their porch. We brought the mascot and gave their awards on the porch of their house. We did our winter, our fall ceremonies in our parking lot, but we made it happen. And we didn't actually move into a physical building until this year. This is the first year we've actually been in the building together, but we were able to transfer the culture that we established with our kids in the first year into this year. And our team is stronger for it. But to your point, Linda, we were stubborn that we were going to open. And we were the only freestanding public charter school in New York State to open in 2020. Everyone else took an additional year, understandably so because of some of them. But we didn't. We opened. And I'm glad we did. <laughs> I can't commend you enough. Um, can you say a little bit more? Then I want to jump if Jed says I have enough time to jump to Ambrosia. How, what do you do every week? you give awards or something? So yes, we have monthly and quarterly awards. During the pandemic year, the first pandemic year, we would print out the award certificates and the, the students' homeroom teacher plus our mascot, Buffy the Bulldog. We'd show up at their front door with cameras and have a little bit of a party on their uh, doorstep. We have a video we record and we put it on social media to celebrate their awards. And that was our way of having an award ceremony on the road so to speak. And it was really exciting. And we do them now inside the building, which is also great because we invite their parents, but we forever have that as our birth story, how, how we still made it. And we kept the focus around the kid. How can we make their experience still experience they're going to remember because this is their time in school. And that's what we did. It sounds like you combined business practice with your experience in the military. As you describe it, uh, that's what I see is the combination of those two what people in education may call outside forces but i don't see them as outside at all that's terrific how did you ambrosius go through that first year the pandemic for us the pandemic hit um, march 2019 which year one of operation for ivy hill prep and i remember just the excitement we felt at the beginning of the school year. When we were in the fellowship, we were pushed to think about what our school would look like, feel, and most importantly, what it would sound like. And I remember having a very clear picture of what Ivy Hope Prep would look like, feel like, and sound like. 
And I remember we opened August, August 29th, 2019. And throughout those initial months, we had poured in everything to create the school that we knew that we wanted to create. And we were doing an amazing job. Parents were happy. Our staff, they were growing and developing. And I remember on March 13th, that was a Friday. That was the last day that we were in school before we had to close our doors for COVID. And I remember how disappointed we all felt because we felt like we were being robbed of time. I remember telling our team that we were going to only be out for two weeks, but there was something in my spirit that told me that we would be out for longer. And I remember that weekend, I didn't sleep. And I didn't sleep because our school is located in District 18. And at that time, only 18% of children in that district could read and do math on grade level. And I thought to myself, if only 18% of children are proficient in literacy and math, and that's when students are in the school building every single day, what are these numbers going to look like when our students are not? And I said to myself, Ambrose, you have to figure this out. Like you have to figure out a way where students are still learning and the academic rigor is not being compromised because we, were, we are now virtual. And I remember reaching out to so many different principals. What are you guys doing? What's your network doing? Uh, a lot of folks were using worksheets um, and they were sending students home with worksheets or they would put all of the students on Zoom at one time. And it just didn't, it didn't sit well with me. And I said to myself, I, I don't believe in this method. I don't believe that I put 37 year olds on Zoom and still trust that they're going to receive an academically rigorous experience. I was like, we're not gonna do that. And I remember I didn't sleep for about three or four days. I was able to move around about $15,000 in our budget. We were able to purchase Chromebooks for every single student. We purchased hotspots for children who did not have access to internet at home. And in about, I would say a week and a half after we closed, we were able to disseminate all of those materials to all of our families. In addition to binders that were broken down by academic level, where students had grade level and le levels of homework that were aligned to where they were academically. And we gave parents every single thing that they needed. And we hopped in an approach to remote learning that was very different from what a lot of other charter schools were doing. And it was hard because we were very new in the game. I founded Ivy Hope Prep when I was only 26 years old. So not only was I a year one leader, I, I was young and I didn't have loads of experience to lean on. I just had to lean on what felt right in my spirit and what I felt was appropriate. And our approach to remote learning was different. A lot of our teachers weren't happy because a lot of their friends at other schools had to do phone call check-ins with children, but our teachers were teaching all day. And we were also able to break our students down into groups based on their academic level. So students were not, we didn't have 30 students in, in one group. Our students were broken down into classes of 15, where each group was about five or seven students based on where they were academically so that we could still push them. Our students still had assessments every six to seven weeks. We did all of that remotely. We switched up the groups as our students shifted academically. We still completed instructional plans and data analyses. Our, student, our teachers still received professional development virtually. It was also really important for me to teach during that time. I realized that you can't be a good leader and coach teachers on things if you haven't experienced it yourself. And remote learning was very different. So I taught classes because I had to figure out what the secret sauce was to make it work, to ensure that it was engaging and to ensure that students were still learning. 
And it was incredibly successful. So in our first year, we were actually interviewed by David Frank, New York State Education Department. That's our authorizer. And we were interviewed like, how did you guys figure this out? How are you receiving the results that you are? How are you able to provide students with martial arts remotely, social emotional learning remotely? How are you doing this? And we were really proud of ourselves as a school because we were able to do that. And I would say the only other thing that I would add is that is when I saw how deep our personal relationships were with our families. Friday, March 13th was when we closed. On Saturday, March 14th was when the grocery stores were packed and people were looking to get food, including myself. That morning, I called every single parent of every child in a homeless shelter at our school. And I took down a running list of every single thing that they needed. And I purchased whatever it is that they needed for themselves. And I dropped off those materials at all the homeless shelters before I went home to my own. And those are the relationships in times like this where it's the love that you lean on. There's one part of the work that is professional and academic. And there's another part that's just humane. Like, how can I make sure that people feel loved and supported during this time where no one has answers? So though the pandemic was incredibly challenging, and it still is, we were able to start off on a really strong note. So when we went into year two, which was year two for us, and then year three, we were able to just tweak our plan and get better and better. So when we led professional development for our teachers, there were two different types of professional development. So one was for in-person instruction and one was for virtual instruction because by that time we had figured out the do's and don'ts, all of the best practices to ensure that teachers felt successful and supported and students still learned. And I know I mentioned that 18% of students were on grade level in our district. By the end of year one, we had 87% of our students who were proficient going into the next year. So we were able to flip those numbers for the, from the district, which was something that we were really proud of as a brand new school. Thank you, Ambrosia. I'm gonna uh, hand it back to Jed because I want you to know, Jed, you've just seen examples of resiliency, persistence, stubbornness. And you've also demonstrated why it was that I reached out to you, Linda, first, and why I trust you on all things charter. You always connect me to such extraordinary people. I will just end uh, by saying thank you, but also returning, Chris, to your story about your mom and her illness with ALS. ALS has touched you know, my life and, and played a key role in actually the formation of charter folk. Because before I took my role at the California Charter School Association, I had a close friend and mentor, Brian Bennett, who had taught me more about charters than anything else. And he had, a, he had ALS. And one of the last things that he was able to do professionally was to serve as my supporter through the interview process into CCSA. And he had the form of ALS that attacks the voice. And so I got a call one morning that I had been chosen by the California Charter School Association to become the CEO. I called my wife and I shut off my phone and I drove directly to Brian Bennett's house. And I told him there that for however long I would be continuing to work in the charter school movement, I will make sure that the voice of Brian Bennett is forever. But the amazing thing that I've now noticed all through all my years of doing this is by bringing that kind of commitment to all of the amazing charter folk that I come into contact with, making sure that the voice of charter folk shall be ever heard is something I know is making a positive difference in our world. And when I now meet the two of you, I know now why I'm grounded and I'd find new resiliency, persistence, stubbornness, whatever it may be. So on behalf of all the people who whose lives you guys are positively affecting, 
And on behalf of people I think you're going to be inspiring today with you know appearing here, I just say thank you. And I look forward to staying in contact with you. I know Charter Folk needs to be reaching out to you and finding ways to profile even more of your stories so that we can learn even more about you. To all of you, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jed. Thank you so much.